0: Greetings from the north, all citizens of the globe, welcome to the forum. Tonight we will look into the power elite and some of their main institutions, apart from the obvious Pentagon, Washington and the alphabet soup of American intel agencies. Obviously it's a gigantic field, so we'll but scratch the surface in particular deal with the Bilderberger conferences, NATO and the European Union. In the future, we'll shed much more light on the globalist oligarchs and their multinational corporations that, unbeknownst to a large segment of the population, has almost taken over the Western democracies and turned them into fascist corporatism. Or the Fourth Reich, if you like. Indeed, as you will see, the collapse of the Third Reich was a foundation for the current status quo, thus we're moving on in our timeline of the break of a sieve series from World War Two and up to-day. Our guest is optimal to account for this as he is one of the world's foremost experts on many of these elements dealt with. I'm of course referring to Tony Gosling, a British land rights activist, historian and investigative journalist. He attended the Ilkley College in West Yorkshire with a humanities degree specializing in English literature from Bradford University. After working a few years in the family aviation business, he went into radio journalism. He worked for the BBC between 86 and 87 as director general scrutineer. Between 87 and 89... Worked for the strategic intelligence and advisory firm Huckeloit and Company as customer role playing manager, then moved on to radio. Thames Med, now Time FN 106.8, in London as editor of community programmes until RTM got purged for quality journalism by the suits in 91. Between 89 and 93, he was back at BBC for a researcher's job and received full BBC legal broadcast training. During this time he worked for different BBC outlets as a researcher, reporter, relief presenter, radio journalist and documentary maker. When BBC got slaughtered in ninety three, he moved to Oxford and between ninety five and ninety nine was involved with environmental campaigning at the Land is Ours, working as national coordinator and office manager into the late 90s. After moving to Bristol and committing further to investigative journalism, he established Eye Contact Video Network and Ecovillage Network UK. Gosling spent a year on the national executive of the National Union of Journalists, eight years as their secretary and also vice chair of the Bristol branch. Between o five and o six he was public relations officer for South West Trades Union Congress, between o six and 07 public relations officer for Avon Fire and Rescue. Between 2009 and ten he was choice-based lettings consultee for Bristol City Council. Between eleven and fifteen he was resident board member for Nightstone Housing Group. Since 'o he's been working for Bristol Community FM where he produces and presents Friday Drive Time, its weekly politics show. ...accessed online at thisweek.org.uk. Since 13, he's been working as an investigative journalist for Press TV... ...and as a columnist and regular news contributor for RT... ...doing reports on international affairs... ...including the anti-democratic influence of banks, royalty and corporations... He remains an investigative journalist for Bilderberger.org and also regularly post material to radioforall.net. You will also find his work at public-interest.co.uk, 911forum.org.uk and politicsthisweek.wordpress.com. Tony Gosling first discovered the Bilderberger Group during the 1990s and became increasingly incredulous at the extent of the news blackout as his research confirmed its existence so he bought Bilderberg.org domain where he started his expose of them. Over the last 20 years He's kept exposing the secret power of the bank for international settlements and the Bilderberger elite where the dark forces of corporations, media, banks and royalty collude to accumulate wealth and power through extortion and war he's been booted for telling the truth has had his life threatened by the extremist terrorists known as jewish defense league been harassed and arrested and had properties such as computers and contacts lists seized by the police only to have all charges dropped after damage done yet he remains a politically active broadcaster both through radio and internet and as a fierce and principled activist spends his life advocating solutions such as a press which reflects the concern of the public rather than attempting to manipulate opinion sensationalize or dump down on the spiritual side He belongs to the pious idealists called Religious Society of Friends, better known as Quakers, which is consistent with his anti-corpocracy stance, even within the religious field. And today, he will scratch the surface of the corpocracy, briefing us on how they rig the system against you to benefit their fascist oligarchy. Now, a couple of quick warnings. First, uh, as a radio host, he recorded on his part, which explains why the unusual turning of tables where he conducts a brief interview of me. Second, there is a little trouble with the sound on Tony's part. Uh, especially early on in the show, but nothing so serious that you can't make out the gist of the conversation. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Tony.
1: Hello, Alf.
0: So happy to have you on board. Hi. By the way, if you know who recommended you? Um, nope. Well, it's your old colleague, uh,
1: Lawrence Dimelo. Okay. Yes, we had her on. Okay, so the uh, difficulty Lawrence has is because she's from a different world, really. She was working, (laughs) as I understand it, on Discovery Channel back in the days when they used to tell the Truth. truth. Uh, and it's like me in a, we- a weird way exactly. uh, work for the BBC in the days when, you know, you could sit in front of a BBC microphone or camera and tell the truth. Nowadays, if there's anything really which comes close to scratching any power, of uh, the, the real power behind the scenes, then you'll find your whole your, your disappears, uh, appears underneath you, you disappear rather quickly. Uh, There are very, very strict lines about things what you can and cannot say now. And that, I think, started in the late 1980s um, with the sacking of Alistair Milne, who was the BBC Director General, whose Mm. son son is now advising Jeremy Corbyn and is a Guardian columnist. Uh, Seamus Milne, and slowly, I mean, I was actually working for the BBC in 1989, 1991, 92, 93, and I could see the changes going on in the newsrooms, in the production offices, where...
0: Hang on, was this under Blair?
1: No. uh, This is before Blair. Even before Blair? Um, Yeah, this would be the major government, and um, but, but, I mean, the the thing is, this was almost completely irrelevant, which government it was. What happened was... And um, the, uh, the soul of the BBC had been ripped out when um, the Thatcher government um, had gotten rid of Alistair Milne. They put instead in his place uh, the, the BBC's chief accountant as the creative director of the corporation. And it really has been downhill ever since, slowly but surely. The City of London interests – and I say that because – Uh, victor rothschild was very much involved in getting rid of the director general in 1987 um and that's proven in the memoirs of marmaduke hussey Mm. who the uh, sorry the chairman of the bbc at the time he said i mean this was the guy who said to me victor rothschild said to me can you get rid of the director general of the bbc and his the direction actually came from victor rothschild to the chairman of the bbc So anyway, from that time onwards, the BBC has been going downhill. And like I said, I remember seeing these kind of peculiar characters who seemed to be the not the sort of person that you would want to go out to lunch or for a drink after work with, appearing (laughs) in the production offices, who were sort of sinister with their own agendas, where where they were cold. And uh, so there there was a whole change in the uh, ethos of the – staff going on when whilst i was there and um a lot of nepotism so in other words people were getting promoted because of who they knew Mm. sometimes because of who they were sleeping with and that culture wasn't there in 1989 when i first started it really was you know the people were holding that back and it was all about you know what what have you actually done in terms of good creative work Award winning, you know, courageous journalism. And I could see that being witted away over the three or four years I was there. No
0: doubt. We're going to have uh, a series on today's uh, shamestream media. <laughs> and we're going to try uh, make people understand because uh, BBC, like you say, is still living off the old
1: uh, name that they had in their old days. Well, they certainly try to. Um, I think it's fair to say most, many anyway, uh, people who class as elderly people, you know, a lot of them have seen the changes. What the the mass media does nowadays is it provides a kind of comfort blanket for people that don't want to think, Mm -hmm. people that want to believe that everyone is kind of nice and Fluffy and friendly and that wars are something that's far away and will never happen to them and anyway, it's just unfortunate, but really people are kind of good natured and that the people who feel who, who think like that are massaged by the mass media mm. um, and anybody who really starts to expose the truth about what's really going on, who's really running things is not welcome at, at these big institutions now, and frowned on, and and it's almost uh, like a kind of dog whistle—the way uh, that you don't actually hear it, but everybody knows what where you what you can say and what you can't say—that uh, they're really part of an empire, and that empire is doing good things, and if you start to question it too much obviously there's got to be a tiny bit of questioning to have a bit of credibility at all uh, but not to ask any of the really awkward questions yeah. like for example about uh, what's the involvement of these most powerful people in the western world the Bilderbergers getting together every year uh, and in between times Kissinger various other war criminals Tony Blair going to these meetings uh, What what is their influence we, we saw actually nothing whatsoever in any of the broadcast media in the UK, uh, I'm not sure about elsewhere, of the recent Bilderberg meeting in Switzerland. We'll get to that. But, but, but I want to make a point here is that uh, it's what they don't say yeah. which is important. So they'll, they'll talk yeah. about any kind of silly stuff but the really important stuff they just simply will not mention it. It really is taboo. Yep. Um, and that's the thing that I think has really changed over the years because even in the say in the 1960s and 70s you get the old article about the Bilderberg uh, the 1960s you know things would appear but there's been nothing in any of the newspapers uh, and they'll they'll just feed you stuff to keep you entertained really yeah yeah no I totally agree with with that so but let's see if, before we start can I just ask you are we mm-hmm. here Dave because we can just do a little plug for you and your program sure Can you just uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you do there and where you are? Yeah. Cool.
0: So uh, they call me Al Borealis. We are a podcast stationed in Norway, but our reach is global, obviously. We do anything within science, history, culture, philosophy, especially taking on uh, sub- uh, should I say subversive guests, power critics. That's good. Try to have uh, sober people, academics, journalists, but anyone who really deserves a voice. We try to give voice to to more voiceless in in today's media. And we have no uh, taboos, we have no uh, okay. r- content uh, limits we We
1: try to explore the obscure and <laughs> I mean, one of the problems with that sort of uh, list of topics is yeah. quality control isn 't it because sometimes yep. you 've got uh, you know deliberate deceptions mixed in with yeah. obscure truths and, and i mean it 's probably fair to say that there 's still quite a lot of effort goes into controlling history and there's some sure. fascinating episodes in history which haven't been exposed but in order to discredit people what um, often happens is there deliberate deceptions put out so how yeah. do you avoid those?
0: Well I just have to use my common sense that's why I wouldn't have on uh, David Icke although he's done a lot of uh, should I say rebellious uh, stuff uh, I don't trust him as a source because he has tainted him his own info with a lot of lunacy so you just have to I mean that's the thing with podcasts you will find anything out there and the overturn window <laughs> you know will be different than each one so for us yeah. um, for me it's important that people can document their stuff that is not just claims if they can welcome on board so whereabouts do we find you online? So we are big on YouTube, but we are also on all the mainstream podcast platforms. And we're going to emigrate to Minds very soon, which hopefully will take over for YouTube and Facebook.
1: Do you, does it bother you that you're part of the Eric Schmidt, Google, Facebook, uh, YouTube empire?
0: not morally but it bothers me in practice because uh, these days every second show becomes demonetized and even shadow banned because we don't cater to the limits they impose upon us when we do shows we just do uh, try to cover honestly what we think is important and then it ends up being demonetized or shadow banned so that's a bother
1: well yeah so where are you
0: (laughs) I'm stationed in Norway, but half of our audience are Americans, so that's fine. I could be living anywhere. I could be on Antarctica and doing these shows as long as I have internet.
1: Yeah, you could be on Mars. I think you are on Mars. <laughs> yeah, the dark side of Mars.
0: Yeah, yeah, or, or or the North Pole maybe.
1: No, no, I don't think you're on planet Earth. No.
0: <laughs> Hey, let's, let, let's not give too much away. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have to tell you, Tony, every time we have the shows on this topic, weird stuff happens. Yep. It doesn't happen on the other topics, but we are, like, committed to track down the Fourth Reich, basically. Mm,
1: good.
0: And uh, as you know it ends so, up at your...
1: Pardon? Uh, you know, it's interesting because they've got all this stuff about D-Day going on over here at the moment, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Right. Whereas, actually, there was a whole load of, you you probably know, that uh, the British did a lot of work to make the Nazis convince the Nazis they were going to come to Norway.
0: Right, yep.
1: Uh, And the Nazis were convinced they kept something like 15 divisions in Norway. Oh, yeah. they didn't need them. So, this kind of stuff. They didn't
0: need them. Well, that's, well, but. There must have been uh, maybe other reasons, um, you know. I've interviewed a chap who claims that they were very close to that they actually got the nuclear weapon, but not in time to use it. And in that case, heavy water.
1: Want use it? Okay. We want to talk about nukes? Yeah. Uh, subjects because the nukes one is very good. I happen to know someone who was involved in that. Okay. Uh, the Nazis and also the deceptions of D-Day. Right. And I think you look upon this, this little uh, interview, as a sort of alternative D Day discussion.
0: Well, for me, the D Day is just a part in because I want to follow the money. Yeah. De Mello didn't touch that, and we haven't. Really interviewed people. I, I think Peter Lavender will talk about it next time we discuss. Uh, but I think that's important. And then.
1: Peter, Peter, let me tell you about Peter. He's been sent on a wild goose chase.
0: Uh, you, you're talking about Hitler? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. He he changed his mind on that one. Um, but uh, we agree that Bormann survived, right? Definitely. Yeah. So that's enough. We don't need Hitler. Even if Hitler survived, he rot in the shadow. So. He's kind of irrelevant at this point.
1: Well, so just to, uh, everybody, the idea is everyone is supposed to focus on Hitler, right? Hitler, after 1941, Hitler was finished. Right. Okay, so I think there. Okay, so the other thing we could do is look at books, right? Some of the best books on all this, because some of the people who are dead now wrote really good stuff, maybe in the 60s, 70s and 80s on second
0: one. yeah you' you're referring to manning and and all that stuff yeah. farrago
1: he's, he's just one yeah but there, there are also the probably William Stevenson the most important uh,
0: Stevenson yes, but we can't avoid i think. Discussing Bilderberger?
1: No, of course not. No, we don't want. Right, it.
0: because that's that's closely tied to this and to you. <laughs> when I have you on, we have to go into Bilderberger. We need because you know many people think Bilderberger is just crazy conspiracy, So that has to be brought to arrest.
1: Well, let's draw some lines, okay? Because there's things that they claim that Bilderberger is doing, but they're not.
0: Right, and then I think maybe even EU. I mean, in these Brexit times, um, I'm my view on EU. I'm a Norwegian, so I'm against it. But the one I sympathise most with in terms of English politics when it comes to EU is is um, Galloway. That view. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a non bigoted view, but people think, oh, Brexit, that's bigots. <laughs> <laughs> you know, automatically they think. So I, I think the EU perspective make these Europhiles realize this is the wet Nazi dream, for example. That, that I think, is relevant.
1: It's a new book, uh, I'm just thinking of books again. Yeah. Somebody, Cave Brown, a book called uh, Bodyguard of Lies. Oh, Do you know that one? I
0: haven't heard of it. No, that's a new one.
1: Oh, it's really, really important. It's because, I mean, this book... Operation Bodyguard was the codename for the D-Day Deception. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there was lots of deceptions. There was a 30 or 40 levels to this to tr- because they knew that they had to spend some time making sure that there was no uh, – that they would be successful in Normandy and not be thrown back. Right, so okay. August, 19- August 1942 mm-hmm. was – the sort of pre-D-Day, which was Dieppe.
0: Okay, you know what? Let's start there then. Okay. So anyway, let's go for it. Yep. So uh, let's uh, explore the roots of all these things. You know we had this series, which this show is a part of, where we try to track down Bormann. Right. Now you as I understand it, you're critical to the question of Hitler's survival but not to Bormann's. Uh, Why do you think Bormann survived
1: the war? Well, I, I would go so far as to say I know he survived the war mm-hmm. um, I mean if you look at the forensic evidence that was, has been rolled out on a couple of occasions supposedly finding his body in Berlin I mean it just simply doesn't stand up the, the soil that was on the skull um, whether it was his or not doesn't come from Berlin it was you know brought over um, but most importantly I think it's, it's clear through this book Op JV which I take it you're familiar with, Mm -hmm. um, by Christopher Crichton, that there was an operation conducted by Ian Fleming and uh, under the orders of Winston Churchill and Major Desmond Morton uh, right at the very end of the Second World War in Europe, which was to bring Bormann out. And the reason they wanted him out is because he had all the – he was the signatory to all of the bank accounts of Nazi Germany. And he was really the uh, the, the the go-to guy um, for the Fourth Reich. So this this really you know puts Second World War into this completely different context of well, there were all sorts of things going on to do with fascism, Nazism, and you know, and the battle between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. But at the end of the day, there was a tremendous amount of money that the Nazi Party had made out of this. And we're talking about uh, all sorts of security. I mean, really looting all of the, the vaults of all of the central banks in Europe. But yeah. the, the money, mm-hmm. the, it was all disappeared. I mean, the estimates are around about a billion dollars uh, – sorry, billion pounds um, at the time in 1945 had just vanished.
0: Well, I've, heard it, I've heard it much more than a billion because it, you have to take into account – all the corporations all the art all the gold you know yeah. make a total
1: and then all the bank transactions well, doesn't sound a lot uh, it doesn't sound a lot today but I think in 1945 was a lot more I wouldn't like to say you know what the difference is between 1945 and now mm. but it's pretty clear that this money was then laundered through Sullivan and Cromwell the Dulles Brothers law firm I mean he was uh, Alan Dulles was in Switzerland of course mm. making these arrangements at the end of the Second World War and uh, And then this money went down to Borman in um, South America, who was really just an administrator. Um, And those 750 companies, which Paul Manning talks about, were created – and then the money went into those, but I think it's really to get the whole story of what, why Bormann's important, and and the reason I, I don't think that Hitler survived is be, number one because he was a spent force at the end of the war, drugged up to the eyeballs, and there's a lot of attempt to focus on Hitler, but mm. actually he he was you know he he realised his star had fallen after Stalingrad, um, and I think if you want to follow some of the Uh, shenanigans of the collaboration this is really due to okay JP Morgan and the Rockefellers had gotten together with Winston Churchill and Roosevelt before the war had started because they knew there was going to be a war and we're talking about 1937 1938 Mm -hmm. and uh, they set up this organisation which um, was run by Bill Stevenson in the Rockefeller Centre in New York which was already preparing for war and they knew where the war was heading. So this just shows me that all the sort of fairy stories about, oh, this whole business in 1939 was a big surprise. The uh, the invasion of Russia was a big surprise. They knew that the Nazis intended to invade Russia, mm. the Soviet Union, and they were preparing for it. In fact, they knew that it would be very clever to get into Yugoslavia – this is Bill Donovan I'm talking about here – and to stage a coup in order to delay the Nazis in. To taking over Yugoslavia, so that then that meant that uh, Barbarossa had to be put off by another few weeks or a month, and that would mean that the Germans would be would be bedded down and fail to uh, succeed in taking Moscow as part of Barbarossa. So there was a lot of thinking going on. This is all really in uh, uh, William Stevenson's book, A Man Called Intrepid. He also... Another one called the Borman Brotherhood. But he really gives, I think, the best inside story during the war. Then you can go on to have a look at Op JB, which talks about getting Borman out, this operation uh, along the canals. And whenever I talk to people about this, Al, uh, they always say to me, well, how on earth would they have been able to smuggle Borman out from under the noses of the Russians? You've got the Russian Soviet army there mm. watching as these little canals uh, and Borman kind of paddle by. <laughs> Right. <laughs> for something like 50 miles into the towards the american the british zone well i can tell you how they did it and it, it's all explained in the book which is a riveting read um and a very w- beautifully written book mm-hmm. and it's because they had russian speaking people with russian uniforms on who would if any of the any of the soldiers on the bank mm-hmm. shouted to them or whatever then they call out in russian you know Swear at the other soldiers in Russia, and and they had a, a woman with a, either as a colonel or a general's uniform, Russian uniform. So they were able to divert all these uh, these attempts, and they were, were
0: they "Were these British spies, or were they on
1: uh, Team um, Bormann?" They were British spies, but mm-hmm. then then of course this is this is also a very 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 important question: whose side are they on? If they're getting the top Nazi guy out of Nazi Germany in the final two or three days of the Second World War whose side are they on mm. well I would say I mean there was there was a fascinating crew uh, and the thing is I, I you know I really doubted this when I first saw the story so I went and spoke to some of the people who'd known uh, John Ainsworth Davis he, he wrote the book under the pen name Christopher Crichton a lot of people had said to him look you just simply cannot write this because uh, it's all covered by the Official Secrets Act and as soon as you publish it you'll be put into jail or a bullet well yeah jail or a trial possibly
0: but anyway but, but wouldn't that confirm the truth of it if they punished him for
1: it well the thing is he decided i mean he was given advice by various other people and of course he knew ian fleming intimately very well and fleming mm-hmm. had decided he wanted to write about some of the awful things he saw in world war ii the betrayals and this sort of thing in, in a fictional mm-hmm. form Mm. uh and was very successful in fact probably the most successful post-war uh thriller writer in the world and and then there was also dennis wheatley who's was, who was involved as a he was a writer he was very much involved in the wartime deception planning what we'd now call psychological warfare and wheatley too uh, decided after the war well i'm going to write about the second world war in my books through uh fiction and of course they couldn't jailed him for that but but mm. uh, John Ainsworth Davis was really worried he even used the pen name Christopher Crichton because he was concerned about that and mm. I got to know some of the people who'd known him personally to get an impression of who is this guy because he I didn't manage to speak to him before he died about three or four years ago and and I was every single one of them people who'd known him was had nothing but good words to say about him mm. a man of integrity a man of wit, humour. And so I just became, on every level, convinced that this is uh, – I mean, it may be. It's, of course, it's possible that this is a really, really devious deception, but I can see no way possible um, with all of the evidence that there is um, that the British were definitely involved. Um, and the other thing which convinces me of the British guilt is studying the Bilderbergers and the Battle of Arnhem uh, because it's quite clear that the senior British officers – made sure that the Battle of Arnhem was a failure. Now, this has always been a bit of a mystery in the Second World War. Oh, gosh, why did it not succeed? Wasn't it a bit of a disaster? Well, I can tell you it's because the battle was thrown um, by people in the British, uh, senior people in the British Army, and we're talking generals, captains, these kind of people. In fact, two of them uh, were involved in the Bilderberg conferences after the war, and and it's the it's the reason that the Bilderberg is called the Bilderberg is because of the link to Osterbeke, which is on the outskirts of Arnhem, where the British were massacred in the witch's cauldron, they called it, by the Nazis. And in a way, it's a sort of in-joke to say, well, actually, we control these sorts of things. The British might have thought they were fighting with trustworthy generals, but actually the generals were just there to massacre them because they wanted to allow... Another three months for the Fourth Reich and the Third Reich to get their act together and to make sure that all of the wealth had been removed from nazis. So the, re- the restoring for time yeah the idea was that the nazis needed a few more months in order to get the wealth out from berlin mm-hmm. um, away from because the russians were closing in pretty quickly and so this totally failed operation uh at well the, the object of it was to take out the ruhr which was the industrial heartland and the fact that it failed gave the, uh, the The Nazi Empire uh, which was crumbling another three months to make sure they 'd squirreled away all that wealth hmm. effectively and and I mean you know there's really no other explanation I think to on them it 's not a series of accidents uh, The troops were deliberately de- deliberately misdirected into places where they shouldn 't have been, and there was no real real point to be there. Um, And then when it looked as if the battle might be saved, in other words, that the guys at the bridge at Arnhem, the 1st Airborne Division, might just be rescued, (laughs) then Mm -hmm. uh, Lord Carrington appears on the scene and puts his foot down, and General Horrocks, and then they say, this is in Nijmegen, and they say, well, I'll tell you what, we'll just sit here and wait and twiddle our thumbs until the British at Arnhem are dead. And then once the last one is dead, then we'll start moving our tanks forward to try and rescue them. So it was quite obvious by looking at the timing um, and the foreknowledge that they had of the SS being in the area that this was, uh, you know. And, and, and so I suppose what I'm saying here is that the although the, the, the wider plan for the Second World War was laudable to get rid of the Nazi empire, actually the West had had a hand in putting him there in the first place. Mm-hmm. The Brits certainly had. Uh, they saw him as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. And they thought, well, we need a fascist in, you know, in Eastern Central Europe in order to sort of, you know, make sure that the Soviets can't get into Europe. And so they helped to create Hitler in the first place. So I suppose, I mean, getting, getting back to the um, – but we were mentioning Adolf Hitler himself. When Stalingrad happened, he was spent. But then Bormann started really taking over most of Hitler's decisions. In fact, towards the end of the war, Hitler instituted a scorched earth policy. So he wanted every bridge, every town, every city, every factory burnt to the ground. Uh, after D Day, where well, we're talking about uh, August, September 1944, everything was being left because Bormann was just simply countermanding Hitler's orders. And in the knowledge that Hitler would not find out, because everything was coming through Mm Bormann at that point. But hang on about this.
0: Uh, First off, I must say I'm inclined to, to, I'm open to the scenario of Creighton, but we don't really need neither Creighton nor any, because there's so many good books that has uh, made a case for Bowman's escape yeah. that you can basically just pick your scenario. <laughs> I've had on uh, Carter Heydrich, who has done m- most of the research into the um, uh, atom bomb that they uh, attained. You told me that you're familiar with this too
1: this uh, atom bomb tread. What's your take on it? Well, the the Nazis have definitely been developing the atom bomb. There's no doubt about that. I mean, there is uh, now um, nuclear waste being found. Um, There's a story in the Daily Express, I think it was uh, either 2017 or 2018, um, about eyewitness reports of atomic explosions which had been recorded by Allied intelligence. Mm. Two different locations um, and the other thing is, I mean, Carter is probably the best source on this, but he knows that they had enriched uranium, and they sent sent the enriched. And once it became clear that the war in Europe was finished, uh, that they were going to lose, then they got this enriched uranium, and this is why, of course, they needed those extra three months to do all these little things uh, to make sure that the various prizes that they got, technological innovations, etc., were d- d- neatly packaged up. Uh, Ready for um, Reinhard Galen and the intelligence people to do deals with um, Alan Dulles and people like that with the Americans because their allegiance was very close to the United States, not to the Soviet Union. They weren't going to do any deals with Stalin. Um, And so they sent off this um, shipment in a submarine off to Japan. And that's what the Nazis intended to do. But halfway along this submarine got different orders They said no you're going to the united states instead and so the two japanese officers who were on the submarine were shot dead and i mean they say they committed suicide oh, yeah. which i got out but um then that that submarine did a 180 degree turn yeah Carter. argues that's the payment for bowman well i don't think it's just that there's all sorts of other money moving around as well. It might be, I mean, I think he's right in that that was one of the main um, bargaining chips. And he's quite right as well in saying that the technology the Nazis had in terms of the um, triggering devices, the lens uh, explosives in order to trigger um, a particular type of nuclear bomb and also the enriched uranium um, was necessary in order for the Americans to have the two different types of bombs tested so they couldn't have done it really without this Nazi technology. Uh, it did take a few months but the Manhattan Project was kind of uh, you know it, it was it had a few gaps that the Nazis then filled mm-hmm. and yeah I think he's a 100 percent right about that. Okay so let's tie this
0: into Bilderberger. Uh if you could give us like the origin of how because I remember when there was a lot of hula hoop about it in the media they first tried to deny that it was anything yep. then they denied that it mattered like oh yeah sure the world's most powerful people are Gathering together, but <laughs> pay no attention; nothing's going on. Yep. But you, in case people don't know, it has been in the forefront of sober reporting on this fact. So, if you could give us uh, why is uh, why do you think Bilderberger warrants our attention, and how is it tied to
1: the Third Reich? Well, let's start with the second question first, because yep. that's quite clear. Uh, setting it up in um, in Holland. The first meeting in 1954. Uh, Manfred Petrisch and the All Smoke and Mirrors. Uh, I mean, I, if you've not had him on, I think he's definitely someone you should get. Because, Let me note his name. What was it? Yeah, Manfred Manfred Petrisch, his blog, he's uh, Swiss-German, and his blog is All Smoke and Mirrors, Alice Schall and Rausch. Mm-hmm. And he has done, I think, the absolutely best work of anyone in the world in digging out the Nazi origins of the Bilderbergs. Oh, I mean, okay. he, what he's done is he's shown that a whole load of the, particularly for the first five years of the Bilderberg Conferences, from 54 to 61 or so, many of the individuals coming along, um, some German but not all German, uh, had were coming along ostensibly as part of the kind of New Germany and maybe a, a German financial institution, a German university. What he's shown is many of these specific individuals had key roles in the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. And they were, I mean, for example, one was a prop, uh, uh, you know propaganda deputy to Joseph Goebbels. Others were involved in sequestering uh, Jewish and other wealth as part of the, um, you know, targeting, the anti-Semitic targeting of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And they were key people who would otherwise quite possibly have been on trial for war crimes. But they had not changed their identities but they'd hidden their nazi past and uh, so there they were blithely chatting away with people like hugh School, the leader of the labor party at a bilderberg <laughs> conference and he's chatting to these people and they're having these nice bilderberg conversations at uh, the bilderberg hotel in Osterbeke and other subsequent places around europe and the united states uh at, quite clearly many nazis involved including um you know people who then went on to one of the guys i think it was Rudolf Müller uh, one of the early um, Bilderbergers that went on to found uh, the main i think it's called the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung you know main newspaper now in in Germany and these people were very close to um to the the Nazi war machine and the ideology of the Nazi party. So So wasn't
0: the host himself uh, a Hollandic Royal SS member or something?
1: Well, he's probably the key guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was he was originally in the Nazi party in the early 1930s. Uh, He was in in NSDAP. You know, he was he was also in the SS um, as an officer, in the 1930s. Then he dropped all that. Uh, I think it was 1935 or 36, and he married the um, the Dutch princess. Oh, so he had to. No, I'm not sure. Well, know. So he then dropped all this Nazi stuff, changed <laughs> yeah. his kind of uniform. Uh, although he couldn't speak Dutch very well, you know, he, he passed himself off as a Dutch person in the run-up to the Second World War. Wow. Um, and he, he, he was uh, one of the chief Dutch um liaison officers right the way through the second world war being um you know the, the prince Consort, i suppose he was you know the queen um uh, was with him and look so then after world war Two, i mean his actions during the war were were bad enough his involvement with the arnhem campaign quite obviously if you look at looking at it now this is in september 1944 after Uh, Martin Bormann's Red House meeting, which was really the thing that set in train, this is in Strasbourg uh, in August, uh, I think it was the 24th or 25th of August 1944, set in train this Fourth Reich. In other words, the consolidation of German industry uh, abroad, so making sure that it was all the foreign offices of the big German companies that had all the wealth and that they would make sure that these companies continued abroad until the time was right for them to come back to Germany after the war. So that happened in August. And then in September, this Operation Market Garden, this terrible failure in Arnhem. Well, it turns out that uh, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands had sent in a spy, uh, a so-called Dutch resistance fighter, who who was actually an an Abwehr agent. Mm -hmm. So he went in just before the battle started. Uh, in order to alert the underground. But, of course, he didn't alert the underground. He went straight to the Abwehr and said, oh, by the way, there's these massive airborne landings coming in Arnhem, Eindhoven, Nijmegen, uh, in a few days' time, just to make sure that the um, Abwehr knew that this Mm -hmm. uh, operation market garden was about to happen. So that was Bernhard. Wasn't there a movie about this? Well, it's called A Bridge Too Far. And really the only bit in the film... Uh, From the late 70s, uh, mid 70s, I think, uh, it it, it does show Robert Redford having this altercation with Peter Carrington. Of course, Bernhard was the chairman of Bilderberg, one of the founders Mm -hmm. for the first 20 years until the Lockheed scandal. And, And Carrington then also was a Bilderberg chairman. But Carrington was on the ground at Arnhem, too, in a tank. And in the film... You could see uh, the confrontation between the Americans, who've just taken Nijmegen Bridge, lost half of their men, and these several companies of men have managed to swim across the river in these little silly little boats uh, and take the bridge at at Nijmegen, and then they go up to uh, the the British guys in their tanks and they say, "Well, look, why aren't you moving?" And I did speak to, before he died, I believe he's dead now, a guy called Moffat T. Burris, who was a captain in the uh, 82nd Airborne Division, I Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was one of those that got across the bridge. As a captain, he obviously had risked, he'd lost half his men. So he went up, literally, he, he himself went up to Carrington, sitting in a tank, who'd managed now to cross the bridge. And he said, well, why are you staying here? Why aren't you moving on? And this incident is in the film. So there's this altercation between, uh, you know, the British and the Americans in the film. But it's actually far worse than the film portrays because one after another after another. In fact, so uh, so Burris arrives there. In fact, it looks like it was his little troop that cut the wires to stop the bridge being blown up if you look into it you'll find that you know they he got his guys to cut the wires literally seconds before the bridge was about to be blown up at Nijmegen and uh, and then uh, so then he gets his I think it's a uh, major cook colonel Tucker so we're going up and up in seniority and eventual, and eventually General Gavin of the 82nd Airborne Division is also tapping on this tank saying, what are you doing? Why are you waiting here? We've just lost half our men taking this bridge so that you can go and rescue your fellow countrymen at Arnhem and you're just going nowhere. So that incident in the film is far, actually far bigger than it portrays, but at least it's in there. You know? <laughs> so it's, yeah, it, yeah. it shows a fair a fair interpretation of it, but without all the background that I've given you. So Bernhard very much involved. as Just a, like the movie about
0: colonial dignidad. <laughs> it shows you the actions happening but it doesn't put it in a political context
1: <laughs> and I think it's fair to say that people didn't know back then it's easy for us with hindsight right. I think very many people knew in the 1970s they hadn't put the the pieces of the jigsaw together right. uh, as we've ha- been able to do with hindsight um, And our- the, same, the same is true for Bilderberger because there that, that was a lot
0: of rumors about it but now we know a lot more could you fill us in what is it all about why should we care
1: well, it's, uh, let's draw some lines. First of all, it's a NATO organisation. It's <sighs> not rulers of the world. It's a political lobby for NATO. Right. So, so just as you get at the Security Council and the General Assembly of the United Nations, the military people are in charge. I mean, as we're just at the moment that we're having Trump's state visit to the UK with Theresa May the zombie prime minister The, the Americans are not interested in talking to Theresa May or any other politicians they're interested in talking to the military Mm -hmm. and the military really are in charge so when the military say we're going to do something they tend to do it so they'll find a politician who will sell this to the public they'll find some media who will sell this to the public Uh, and i think the same was is true with bilderberg is that the military decide through nato what they want to do uh, and in, in, uh, in in discussion with all the big corporations which land they want to grab which resources they want to take and that then gets sold to the politicians but and that's a that's a
0: intention of the Bilderberger meetings is to bring the orders to the politicians i
1: mean it's a bit like a horse fair, really where you're looking at the you know <laughs> the teeth of the horse uh, right. the height of the horse uh, it, what color is it what how shiny is its fur you know mm-hmm. and uh, that's what the way they look at the politicians and if there's somebody who they like like Uh, Bill Clinton or Tony Blair, someone who's pliable, compliant, convincing. These are all the qualities they're looking for. Someone who can seem credible uh, in front of the cameras for them, really just to be their salesman. And that's actually what their politicians are nowadays in the West. As they go through these people, they're looking for the, who's going to be the next best salesman for our project and who can lie the best most convincingly in front of the TV cameras and to the newspaper journalists. Yeah. And if there are journalists in there, but they're, as Charlie Skelton Who's reporting on the conferences in Montreal uh, that's just passed is saying there's actually more journalists on the inside than the outside. So there are, the journalists on the inside are on the inside of the joke against the public. Uh, right. That there is a thing called democracy. No, of course there's not. And once you realise that, then you may be picked by the Bilderbergs too. But I mean, yeah, you, you know, you're saying what? Okay. Red Lines and Rat Lines and the Bilderbergs. So, yes, definitely NATO countries. And uh, the the people who are really in charge are the financial people and the tech giants. And I think also, clear to say also, the kings and queens and princes and the monarchs. The royals are also present. Yes, mm. uh, often. I mean, we've had an article just in the Daily Express um, in end of May, beginning of June 2019, talking about the presence of Prince Philip and Prince Charles at these meetings. Mm-hmm. It starts to look like a, a sort of little conference of the military with the holy roman empire mm. you know which was supposed to, i think it was supposed to have been gotten rid of in the uh, 1800s sometime uh, but <laughs> these guys aristocrats still believe that they're in charge and in, fact, in many ways they are some of them are massive landowners the Habsburgs, for example mm. still mm. enormous landowners and they have immense power through their wealth of course they, they what they would much rather see on their television screens is some kind of theater which is there for public consumption mm. where they uh, making decisions behind the scenes like a kind of mafia behind the scenes and I think that's really what Bilderberg is about it's like this is what is really going on and the the, re- the people who go there cannot do their conversations on Skype I heard someone saying this recently oh well why can't we just do this on you know Skype message? no because Secret deals are made over cocktails or glasses of wine or, you know, uh, volavons and deals are made face to face, one to one. Uh, Like if you get this sorted for me, I will make you king. I'll make you president. They're the kingmakers. And uh, we actually have evidence for for stuff like this,
0: right? That wars have been cleared and accepted uh, in advance on meetings like
1: this. I don't think they do it in totally, in, you know, in open session, in a formal session. I think what they do is the, you know, what happens is people like Kissinger come along with the military people and the financial people who have agreed these things beforehand. And they, they float these various ideas and they see which politicians will bite. Mm-hmm. Um, which politicians will like what they see, and will be able to convincingly back what we're saying here. So, uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I do not believe that the uh, that this is a real decision-making body. I think decisions get made elsewhere. I mean, we're talking about things like the Pinet Circle and um, other sorts of networking groups of the aristocracy. So so this is more a news brief for
0: the decisions that already has taken place.
1: I think that's probably true, Mm. yeah. Um, And certainly from seeing that some of the participants over the years have come out very much against what they've seen at Bilderberg, Mm -hmm. does suggest that. But war, definitely war. I mean, that's obviously what, what this is about. Same as Bohemian Grove, they cleared the Iraq war
0: there before it happened.
1: Well, the Iraq war was definitely leaked um, from Bilderberg in 2002 yeah. and 2003. Jim Tucker uh, from the States uh, leaked both of those conferences that there was, um, you know, Iraq was target. And in fact, in 2002, people were saying, well, what are you talking about? It's complete rubbish, nonsense. Mm. There's no excuse, no reason to go into Iraq. But by... A year after that, it was a reality. You know, this mm. illegal war had happened. You know, the the masses of troops had gone in uh, from the west, and now I could quite believe it. But they haven't reached the level yet where they're releasing uh,
0: info about the Bilderberger meetings, have they? Because in the beginning, the the meetings themselves are secret. Now they accept they're happening, but the contents are still classified.
1: Has that developed lately? <laughs> Let me give you an example. I mean, Iran and the Middle East agenda of Iran and Syria has been on the um, uh, Bilderberg agenda officially for the last, let's think, eight years. Okay. This year, it's not there. Oh, that's good news. (laughs) No, it's not. It means that they don't want you to know they're talking about it. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So this will be woven in with other discussions or talked about at the bar. You know, uh, but it's definitely, I mean, to have Pompeo at the meeting and Kushner and not to be talking about targeting Iran. Both of them were on the latest Bilderberg
0: gathering. Wow.
1: Well, they're not on the list. I mean, uh, uh, Pompeo was not on the list. Kushner was. But Kushner's come straight from Tel Aviv. Uh, from Netanyahu to into this conference in Switzerland and we're supposed to believe that Iran is not on the agenda well this is you know they're just using this to misdirect people to think that it's not there they're talking obviously they're talking about AI I mean this is one fascinating for me because I think many of the wars that they want like this potential third world war with Iran is uh, are so insane that no, no ordinary human being would want to get involved in it mm-hmm. hence their need for artificial intelligence, hence their need for automatically controlled drones to conduct mm. these kinds of conflicts. Um, and I think what they're doing is they're getting so far into almost like a kind of Armageddon scenario that many human beings who are involved in the military are saying, Well, what are you talking about? And of mm. course, if they say that, they'll be out of the loop. But the yeah. politicians don't care. They're just chicken hawks, aren't they? They've never been involved, mm. they've never heard a, you know, they, they will say whatever it Whatever it takes, uh, in order to get the job, and to get the fame, to get you know the position of power like Theresa May has. Uh, I mean, it's interesting incidentally with Brexit that uh, this is one of the things that came out when she resigned, which very few people have picked up, and nobody's picked up on this. Is mm-hmm. we've had MPs from the Tory party admitting, confessing that. Theresa May was not involved with Brexit. Actually, it was all being conducted through her husband. So if they wanted to get anything done, they had to phone Philip May. And <laughs> Philip May is, uh, is the guy whose uh, capital group in the U.S. is the major shareholder in BAE systems, the people that make money out of warfare. Right. Uh, Lockheed Martin. A mass, they're a massive investor <laughs> in Lockheed Martin. They're also massive investors in Serco, the private prison company networks. So these are the guys. I mean, Philip May is sort of, you know, smiles sweetly and he's occasionally there in the background. The idea is she's not supposed to notice him. But actually, Theresa May is just a, you know, She's a cipher. So strange that the she, feminist, feminist programs, program. <laughs> you know, have not really picked up on the fact that she's been so mercilessly, used, been mercilessly used by her husband. husband. Mm-hmm. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating one dollar to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.
0: But, you know, um, in these Brexit times, by the way, Brexit has tanked hers, and that's a good thing. Uh, unfortunately, Brexit will also, I think, stop an anti-war president for getting to power, namely Corbyn. Uh, Before the Brexit thing, he had uh, huge support now. I I think that will make him fall too. But let's tie... European Union into this Um, some people say that that was conceived already in uh, 42 or something by
1: the Nazis, what's the truth of the Nazi roots? Even even before that actually even before that Mm -hmm. Uh, 1923 to the Pan-European Union, uh, the Habsburg family, (laughs) they formed the Pan-European Union, I think it was 1923 in Munich in the Mm -hmm. same city a few years later guess what else sprang from Munich? The Nazi party. And uh, so, so that was, that was the first um, indications that, that really in 1942, It was, I think, that the uh, economic ministry in Germany, uh, it Walter Funk, I think, from Deutsche Bank or the Bundesbank, uh, drew up this whole Europäischen Wirtschaft Gemeinschaft plan, which was an economic plan for fascist cartels to control the economies of Europe. And Paul Manning's book really talks about this quite a bit as well. And he's saying effectively, look, let's have a cartel running everything. The bank's at the top of the tree. So, when we when we take over France what we'll have already done is we'll have already taken over the French banks and by taking over those banks, I mean talking about buying shares in them, we will also have taken over much of the industry because the industry has been built by the banks and is indebted to the banks. So we will then get preferential control over the directors because we'd be the major shareholders mm-hmm. in these, in these big industries. So That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to have the whole thing run by high finance and by cartels, uh, you know, the Krupps, the Thysons who had funded the Nazi party in the first place. Uh, This is the way they designed the continent. And the EU has rolled that out in the common market. And they even called it, didn't they, in uh, Germany, the Europation Wirtschaft Gemeinschaft, European economic community, the Mm. EEC, which then uh, became the EU. Now, and the political union, it was no accident, is it, that we've now got the situation where with you, with you in Norway, you have to kind of go along with all of the things that the European Union EU comes along with. People are rising against it now. But you but you don't have any say in it. So that was really the common market, the EEC. Yeah. That's what many people in Britain are suggesting now. I mean when well, they have been all the time, saying, Oh well we can just get out of the EU but we won't get out of the customs union is even worse than being in uh, today absolutely right mm. totally agree with you and they're saying this is a good thing to do in switzerland it's the same uh, it's it's totally insane to be suggesting that that is a good thing so you don't have any say in any of the rules but you have to abide by them all mm. uh, that is a dictatorship you know, so why would you want that? And anyway, even if you do have any say in the rules, as Cameron has found, and various of the other British politicians, Theresa May, who've been trying to negotiate with Brussels, is you do not negotiate with these people. They don't give an inch. So you know, no, they made, they made a laughing stock out of her, May. Yeah. And they did the same with Cameron. Actually, mm. uh, he was making a big fuss about I'm going to go and break this deal, broker this deal. Nothing happens. So they have, it is that the whole the whole um, organisation is set up to work for industry, and 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 the and the politicians are simply there to sell industry's plans to the population, and the MEPs get no say really whatsoever. Mm. All they do is I mean they've just had this copyright directive that's come through, which means that you can close websites if they've got some sort of copyright dispute. It enables yeah. big corporations yeah. with money to just pay a lawyer to close a website. And that's mm. all just gone through. The MEPs have had to finally give in to that. So the power is all in the hands of the commission, and these are all failed politicians. I mean it's almost as if it's the worst possible <laughs> scheme for running Europe that anyone could possibly uh, have devised. Is, am, I, am I wrong?
0: But this is outside of uh, democratic control, right? Totally. It is the commission. Who, who chooses them? The failed politicians.
1: The failed politicians. Uh, uh, someone uh, has to elect them or select them, obviously. Well, only we select the leaders of the EU by voting them out uh, of, of, uh, of office. So if they're a failed MP like Chris Patton or Neil Kinnock or somebody here in Britain, mm-hmm. once they failed, then suddenly the EU wants to recruit them. So we, we appoint the leaders of the EU – uh, the real leaders and the commission by kicking them out of politics. So how perverse is that? I mean, this is an insane system. It's, it, look, it's, isn't it probably true that it was bound to fail? I just think that it's great that the Brits have uh, really made things difficult for them. It's fantastic that that's happened. It makes me feel proud to yeah. be Brit. Brit. Um, but at the end of the day, what is going to happen is going to be a lot of chaos, and it seems to me that the uh, Brussels machinery is trying to make it as chaotic as possible. So it's trying to keep as many people in as it possibly can for as long as it possibly can. Yeah,
0: I think it would backfire.
1: Uh, yeah, but it's going to be chaos. I mean, all these various countries, they're trying to keep in. The Italians, I mean, they're completely controlling Italian politics, yeah. controlling Greek politics, uh, in Germany, there's a lot, there's a, it was somebody shot dead the other day, I believe, or shot himself or someone, you know, in, in the main, um, is it the CDU party in Germany? Mm-hmm. All sorts of very, very peculiar things going on. But I think that that seems to me to be the actual project of the EU. is to to create as much chaos in Europe as possible. And then, of course, once you have order from chaos, they they will come along with some kind of thing. We'll say, oh, well, this will sort everybody out. The euro, of course, is about to fail. And when we interviewed Steve Keen, uh, the economist who wrote Debunking Economics, and he said it's a suicide pact. It cannot work the euro and it's being proved all over europe that it cannot work for anyone that's actually having to live under the euro the dollar is also under threat massively i mean the, the former governor of the bank of england mervyn king has informed us all that uh the west is now facing a 144 trillion pound debt overhang and it's getting mm. bigger bigger all the time so it's basically an, two cliff edges So we're on an economic cliff. Uh, Hang on, hang on. Who are we owning this debt to? China or the oligarchs? Well, this—it's not just okay. So this is mainly owed to the banks that are creating this debt in the first place. Mm -hmm. So they are creating debt, spending it, and then that debt is not being repaid. So this This is this is (laughs) this is the crazy stuff called
0: quantitative easing. Right. You've been on top of Bank of International Settlements.
1: Uh, would you say Bank for International Settlements?
0: Yeah, you've been on top of them for many years. They have a
1: Nazi connection, and are they central in this? Definitely. I mean, this is the bankers' central bank, isn't it? The central -hmm. bank. bank, They were involved in um, uh, financing Hitler's rise to power. uh, And at the uh, the Bretton Woods Conference after World War II, uh, the John Maynard Keynes and various others, they all voted. To abolish the bank and so the bank moved to a, a anonymous office over a chocolate shop in basel opposite the railway station where it didn't even say on the door bank for international <laughs> settlements you had to knock on this door so many times or ring the bell or code mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the bank carried on but it is it is the uh, the the main banking regulator for the whole world and i think if it was shut down tomorrow it would, it would get a lot the world would get a very much lighter very very quickly because because money has been you know it was created originally as something which would be a servant to people it's become the master you know so many people yeah. just make their decisions every day based on oh, how am i going to get enough money to feed my children to pay the rent to stop being evicted from my home and, yeah, that's a major part of all of this. And, you know, that's another reason why the Swiss of, you know, uh, why people like Manfred, I was mentioning earlier from All Smoke and Mirrors blog, he just got out of Switzerland. He said this country is being controlled and uh, there's no real democracy. The politicians, as he so beautifully puts it, the politicians have nothing to say, nothing to say. That's how he puts it, and uh, because they're 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 never actually addressing the real issues, you know, to do with land, money, mm-hmm. land re- redistribution. Everybody should have a piece of land. I mean, we've got yeah. was it sixty five thousand, sixty five million people in Britain and sixty five million or so acres, and they say there's there's got to be homeless people on the streets. I mean, no, everybody needs somewhere to live, and everyone should have somewhere to live. This is called social justice, uh, and yet money is used to keep that land away from people and enclosure over the years the privatization of land is a major you know that's that was the english civil war did a lot to accelerate that i'm afraid it's the brits again and our empire you know spreading these crazy british ideas all around the world and the chinese are getting on that bandwagon too i was in new New zealand a few years ago and there were a whole load of chinese learning how uh, uh, to do land property sales (laughs) Yeah, they're taking over Africa
0: and South America, but they at least do it in a much more clever way than Americans have done.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Because they give something back to the areas they're invading. Well, this is another thing about the Bilderbergs, really important to understand, is it was created by the psychological warfare people and the War and Peace Studies group of the Council on Foreign Relations uh, in 1943, the first ideas of having a Bilderberg meeting. Uh, so it was really a way of the Americans controlling Europe, making sure that uh, that, that they were involved in uh, selecting politicians and you know making sure they knew who they wanted to be the next chief politician in various countries, giving them a lot of positive media coverage, that sort of thing. But also to uh, make sure that that um, the none of these co- uh, European countries started going communist because, of course, right. a lot of very attractive ideas. In fact, the CIA spent, I think, more than any other project in the yeah. entire history of the CIA was spent on stopping Italy going communist because Italy was commun- you know, Most of the people wanted the communist government. And they'd seen mm. how successful it had been in redistributing wealth and you know, making sure that uh, people had a fair deal at work and all that sort of thing. And people liked communism in Italy. So the Americans and uh, the Bilderbergers did everything they could to stop Italy going red.
0: Yep, uh, it's proven in later years. Right.
1: So, uh, you know, Operation Gladio, which, by the way, I mean some of your listeners may not realise, uh, what was NATO basically took that straight out of the Nazi uh, field manual. Not the only that, it even took the people. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the no, stay behind was filled with Nazis. That's right. It was the Nazi werewolf program uh, from the uh, last few, last six months of the Second World War. Um, Hello? Yeah? Yeah, the last few months of the Second World War. Hang on, it's gone quiet here. Can't hear me. Can you hear me? Anything happened there, Dave? Hello? Oh, that's better. Yep. You can hear me? Yes, that's
0: much better. So, uh, so NATO, EU, Bilderberger, Bank of International Settlements, it's all got Nazi roots. Yep. Uh, but they say that most of the top bankers are Jewish, not Germans. Is this true?
1: Well, look, I don't use this word Jewish. What are you talking about? Yeah, I guess uh, it's a religion, right? Not at, a, you can look at Zionism, yeah. And you can also look at uh, people who are um, Kazarian uh, Ashkenazi whatever but don't talk about Jews because th- this is a religion it's like you know it's like calling Tony Blair a Christian
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. or a Catholic. <laughs> or, Ge- or
1: George Bush a Christian
0: <laughs> I mean but yeah. we get responses from uh, there will always be a certain segment of listeners who will draw the Jew card i want you to address that
1: <laughs> Even, even, the, even the Bible makes it very clear. The people who call themselves Jews, I think, is in, in the book of Revelation, but are not, and they lie. Mm. I mean, there's a whole little section in the book of Revelation that says that this is a lie. So, I mean, we shouldn't really be repeating that lie. I mean, it's like, it's like um, I mean, what happened in, uh, in Nazi Germany was the, the the rabbinic tradition was wiped out. Mm. Many of the powerful financiers who call themselves Jewish – who didn't actually adhere to the religion at all, uh, you know, and they were spared, no problem at all. Yeah, uh, rich secular Zionists. Yeah, it's the secular. I was, and you can't, how can you be a secular Jew? How can you be a secular <laughs> Christian? You know, <laughs> right. these are, these are de- the terms which are designed to just confuse and, you know, send your mind into a cul de sac. Mm. So. Uh, I mean, yes, there's the, you know, Christianity has been used, the Catholic Church. I mean, what about the Vatican being used for, you know, conducting safe passage for Nazis at the end of the Second World War? Uh, I mean, that's not Christian. It's like it's talking about the Templars, the you Knights know, Templar in the Crusades, mm, uh, yeah. rivers of blood as they charge into Constantinople to, in an attempt to destroy the Orthodox Church, mm. kill almost everybody in Constantinople. That isn't Christian you know so I think there's definitely use of these terms uh, to uh, to try and deceive people, particularly the mass media, which is why I'm surprised to hear you use it. The mass media—that's the sort of term they would, you know, they use quite a bit.
0: Oh yeah, and, the, the and, and anti-Semite too. Uh, if you have a Zionism criticism, then you're an anti-Semite. Yeah. If you're a Jew criticizing Zionism, then you're a
1: self-hating Jew. I mean, they also <laughs> use they also use the terminology like, uh, oh, these right-wing Christians in America or the even. Evangelical Christians or fundamentalist Christians in America, blah blah. These are all the wrong terms. The people you're talking about are Christian Zionists, and right, the Christian right, right? Christian Zionists are so the maniacs. Yeah. Pompeo is a Christian Zionist. He's not a <laughs> fundamentalist Christian. He is, you know, what was? What does that mean anyway? Does it mean he reads the Bible every day? No, he just uses it as an excuse because he wants a war mm. with Iran, just like Netanyahu. So I mm-hmm. think you know the idea of. Uh, you know, the idea is to sort of sweep up all these maniacs and try and mix them in with decent Orthodox Jews, decent Jewish people. Uh,
0: yeah, lots yeah but, but my point is there was Nazi bankers. You had uh, um, Schaft or whatever his name was, Hjalmar um, Schaft. Schaft, yeah. yeah. He was a uh, German, wasn't
1: he? about the main the main ideologue behind the tool society and the theosophists that gave birth to the nazi party mm. i mean peter linda's done a lot of work on this yeah. brilliant yeah. stuff actually digging all this out i mean we're supposed to believe that he wasn't jewish i think he was jewish uh rosenberg you know um and so just because they're they're calling themselves jewish doesn't mean to say that they have any link whatsoever with the old testament or even the middle east it means mm-hmm. they're imposters, just like Tony Blair and George Bush. So, you know, I think we've just got to draw a line between the real and the not real Mm -hmm. in order to help anybody that's trying to understand this clarify. Because what they're really trying to do is exactly what they did in Northern Ireland, what they've been doing in the Middle East, is to set one faith against another, set one part of a faith against another. So the Protest we were told in Britain that the Northern Ireland conflict was a Protestant versus Catholic. No, rubbish. It's a republican versus loyalist conflict. But you can you can you can confuse people by saying it's a religious conflict. Mm-hmm. The same Middle East with the Shia versus the Sunni yeah divide and conquer the oldest playbook in the world they always try and make out this is the Sunnis and the Shias fighting each no it's not it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a bunch of mercenaries uh, Wahhabists and Takfiris you know mm-hmm. fighting uh, the a legitimate government of some sort whether it's syria iran or whoever you know so th- there's always this terminology all around around religions It's pretty clear to me right since uh, we, we had adolf hitler and his attempt to wipe out the whole rabbinic tradition in europe uh, that there's been continued attempts to get set religions against each yeah. other and actually to wipe out all those uh, anybody who's uh, involved in any of those, uh, who has faith in any of those um, Judeo-Christian faiths, Mm -hmm. including
0: But Bush was actually right. There is an axis of evil, and that axis is USA, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. That's for as far as today's powers goes. Okay. But hey, Tony, uh, I'm not so clear uh, still on the connection between EU and uh, the Third Reich. Could you elaborate a little more on that?
1: Well, I mean, I think you just need to go back to look at the uh, this this plan, this 1942 Operation Wirtschaft Gemeinschaft. It's just identical to the economic plans for europe um was it an actual blueprint yes oh it's a massive document in all in german Mm -hmm. uh so i mean the, the other thing is that the the eu has been a very slow process um over the years but it's been absolutely relentless margaret thatcher was kicked out of office because she refused to hand over britain's sovereignty you know so this has been a slow attempt to create a united states of europe mm-hmm. and and i think it's really good to look at back at the pan european union and these aristocrats you know this kind of holy roman empire to see where it's really been coming from and uh, and I mean the, the, the other people just implement it because they're paid to implement it there's money around mm-hmm. for to do that and I mean, you can see how – actually, if you go back to the American War of – not War of Independence, the Civil War, you can see Albert Pike, this famous figure. Well, he's not anywhere near as famous as he should be. um, Mm -hmm. He is making this uh, letter to Mazzini, the creator of the Mafia in Italy, saying he wants various world wars. And if we have these world wars, we can shift power and basically totally destroy the geodegraders. Uh, judeo-christian faiths and we can have the whole of humanity in our hands spiritually which is an interesting plan it's pretty devilish plan but the what was the real point of the american civil war it was to concentrate power in washington i mean there's a lot of talk about slavery and that was obviously a major factor in it too in motivating people but what motivates people isn't always real so i mean look at the crusades Mm -hmm. back in the medieval times what motivated the crusaders was something called the letter of prester john now the letter of prester john was fabricated by the vatican and it said that there was a, another a christian king who was uh, the other side of the middle east somewhere and he was fighting the the um, muslims mm-hmm. and in order to help him well, we had to go and to his aid and we had to fight the muslims too from this side and hopefully you know we could then liberate jerusalem well the letter of prester john was a massive motivating factor in getting people to get on their horses and and chug off down to the middle east but it was a complete lie like 911 was a complete lie yeah. the actual uh, the idea that al qaeda was uh, behind it is beyond a joke now because you know we've been allied to al qaeda in syria for example yeah. Uh, so the, the motive, the motive isn't always anything to do with reality. In fact, that seems to be how. Uh- <laughs> tricked over the years. This brings us to a crucial matter. You have a
0: DVD called The New World Order and I guess that's a good name as anyone. Um, But could you define, because we're getting closer to the real question, who is number one? Okay. (laughs) As the prisoner posted back in the day. So uh, if we introduced the concept of New World Order, how would
1: you define that? Uh, New World Order, I think, is... uh it's a project for uh, beyond democracy I suppose, beyond the West so it's something that it attempts to rule from behind the scenes, I mean the obvious image is the one of the eye in the top of the pyramid uh, in on the back of the dollar, this novus ordo seclorum so that, mm-hmm. I mean it's often mistranslated, it actually means a new secular order mm-hmm. and So the idea is it's away from God and we don't need God and mankind can create his own order. I think there's a philosophy behind this new world order that it probably goes along with something like transhumanism. Mm, So the idea is that there is no God and man can become God himself. And that is to say he can genetically engineer himself. He can genetically engineer his children to live forever, to get rid of the genes of aging Uh, he can have an interface, a biological interface with computers, with, uh, you know, with laptops and and digital systems, Mm. uh, and that he can have a relationship with artificial intelligence that enables him to rise above the ordinary. So I think this is also very, very, very important in this, is a separation from ordinary people. So the elite do see themselves as completely... I mean, I've met some of these guys. I met uh, the... Oh, of course, James A. Johnson, who's one of the Bilderbergers. Who was, uh, he's also a director of Goldman Sachs. He was the bag man for Hillary Clinton, for uh, Barack Obama's election campaigns. And they just see themselves as superior to everybody. I mean, they are really aloof in their own way, manner, and they just dis- they, they, they have absolutely disdain for ordinary people. They see themselves mm. as bigger. Uh, the other one was Jacob Wallenberg or oh, was it Marcus Wallenberg I'm not sure anyway one of the Wallenbergs the the people these these are the biggest bankers and private bankers in Sweden they own Sweden pretty much yeah. and they own the swedish political process they own the swedish industries um, and they they're very supercilious types i mean they they believe that we are untermensch you know and again that will link us back to the nazis won't it Yeah, and you have
0: a book coming up called The Siege of Heaven, How Breaking the Grip of Oligarchy Will Unleash the World's Human Potential. Is what you just talked about touched in this book?
1: Well, if if this book ever comes out, that'd be nice. <laughs> I mean, I, I have uh, sort of chivied up the publishers to get it out, but um, they uh, have been been a little bit slow. I mean, I don't really blame them because you know they've got a lot on apparently. But can't you just self-publish in this day and age, Lulu or something? Probably yes, I probably could. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I th- I think this larger a larger part of what uh, we need to do, I think, is we need to educate. And we need to be educators and we need to educate others as to how the oligarchy is doing what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth is out there. Um, I would suggest that it's not actually that difficult to figure out um, how things are working. Uh, that the, there's, there's quite a lot of that really good information out, out there about how to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And that is really to just, first of all, in our own minds, to be clear about what we want, what our values are. You know, justice, social justice. Um, and and we, we just to simply refuse to be browbeaten. And I also, I mean, the reason I call it siege of heaven mm-hmm. is because I think what we've seen is a tiny number of people. I mean, I mean, just one example over the years, there's a small number of people doing this to us. Uh, I, I, I I was knocked over by the um, connection between the two Cromwells in Britain. I mean, we had the the dissolution of the monasteries, which was absolute destruction of uh, what was in those days was the welfare state, you know, the the monastic system where – Education was going on, hospitals, um, you know, all sorts of things like you know, building roads and infrastructure, that sort of thing the monasteries were doing. In the mid-1500s was completely decimated by Henry VIII, and his guy to do that was a guy called Thomas Cromwell. A mm. hundred years later, we had the English Civil War with Oliver Cromwell, and I suddenly thought, well, I mean, these guys are a bit, you know, peculiar they both got the same surname. Are they related? Mm and I asked a couple of friends of mine people who should know oh no 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 they weren't related yes they were related the same family was involved in smashing the monasteries as part of the reformation and also smashing the country and killing the king as part of the English civil war and really it was a part of the same process which was a small number of people in this case merchants and bankers gaining control of the country and that enabled the creation of the british empire the industrial revolution i mean the biggest empire the world seen and, and it was so big that in late 1800s cecil rhodes uh, seriously put together the plan to take over the world he thought that the british empire was at such a stage that if we played our cars right the british would control the world and that's when he set up this secret societies in his will that became the royal institute for international affairs the chatham house the um, in the states later manifested as the council on foreign relations mm. so these private think tanks that were supposed to direct foreign policy so that's the stage that britain was at and the fact that oliver cromwell was the great great grandson of Thomas Cromwell's sister, I think should be more widely known. You know, a handful of people have been behind these massive transformations in just here in Britain that led to so much, you know, influence across the world because Britain became, after the Civil War, really during the Civil War, became the first capitalist country in the world. So the merchants had taken over the whole of Britain in, in, in previous generations. And, you know... And back in medieval times, there had been you know, merchants and capitalists controlled cities, and that was the way it worked. But, and the feudal classes that controlled the land really ran the countries mm-hmm. through the king, the queen, whatever. But that was the, that was the civil war was what really got the ball rolling, killing the king. Replacing, changing the relationship, you know. And this was done deliberately by um, Oliver Cromwell's son-in-law, Henry Ireton, who, when there was going to be a vote in Parliament after the war about, um, you know, making negotiations with the king, he'd spied on the MPs in – this is in 1648, late 1648. He Mm. spied on all the MPs and all of the ones that were pro-negotiation with the king, he made a little list of them. And then he gave them to Colonel Thomas Pride, who came in the day before the vote and arrested all of them. <laughs> effectively, Wow. So, so when the vote happened, the king was impeached or, you know, put on trial for his life mm. and, and then executed by Cromwell's son-in-law, effectively, just uh, getting rid of all of the MPs who might vote against him. You know, imagine if that was to happen nowadays, you know, the troops, the soldiers marching into... Uh, the houses of parliament and just anybody that was voting for brexit or against brexit they would arrest them and put them in jail and so the vote went the right way Right, right.
0: Well, they have a more civil way of doing that today, right? They just put up a new election. <laughs>
1: yeah. it's, it's called m and it's, you know, yes, it's called private intelligence and secret services, and but they, they definitely, you know, the Americans are doing a hell of a lot of spying. Yeah. Uh, and they, a lot of these things, uh, for example, the euro was put together by spying on the various countries that didn't want to join it to undermine them and make sure that the various people were bounced out of power who were going to be resisting the euro. So that's how things happen nowadays. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons Reasons why we see so many of these tech companies, spy firms, um, and Facebook and people like this—you know—on the on the on the, um, uh, on the Bilderberg conferences. Feel, mm. you know, these guys. Eric Schmidt is now running things really at Bilderberg. Uh, you know, the founder of Google. Mm. And that's why, because these, these are really f- front-end surveillance systems for the NSA and for the GCHQ. So when you're yeah. typing in your Google search, uh, every single letter you type is being monitored by the NSA, and they can then switch someone literally on a screen in the NSA in real time to your computer to be watching everything and to go in and have a look at what is on this, who is this person that's searching for this subject
0: mm. in real
1: time. And uh, that's the world we live in, although the media aren't really, mass media aren't really explaining that to us. So when you say they have access to the computer,
0: do you mean the browser or do you mean actually inside the hard disk?
1: Well, I don't think they have any trouble getting into, you know, certainly a Windows computer, do they, or or an Apple. It's just, it's wide open to them, as far as I understand. Yeah. Um, okay last question then um, when we go back to the money
0: the missing money of Bowman where we began uh, there is this um, Argentinian journalist uh, he works for The Guardian I think not Abel Basti he's in Argentina someone else um, it was Lawrence who mentioned him to me apparently he's tracked down this money and he believes it's still in place Where do you think uh, it all ended well, up? Because you said uh, Borman was an
1: administrator. Well, yeah, he set the companies up. Okay, so that was his job. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also made sure made a lot of the appointments to the boards of these seven hundred and fifty companies. I think you know there's a, actually a. If you go online, you can you can find a list um, of I think it's, isn't it the eight com- or nine companies that run the world's food system. For example, wow. what you do is you will find that almost all the food brands fall in I mean it's, there's a whole load there's Kraft, Procter and Gamble, Pepsi uh PepsiCo, Coca-Cola. Um okay. you know, I can't remember them all right now. Monsanto. Uh, well, no, this isn't a food company, as far as I know. No, oh, okay. But, food. Uh, but anyway, uh the the point here being that Uh, the idea was to create corporations which would be effectively be the government, Mm. you know, so, uh, so as that money comes through Sullivan and Cromwell and Dulles and and John Foster Dulles firm in New York and it's then being funneled into these businesses and then uh, Nazis appointed to the board. So we're talking about Nazis with nice suits on some with altered identities um, and, many of them were the i mean the big, people who got the biggest rewards were people who'd been nazi agents in the west mm. and japan and places like that you know so these these people would be given um, jobs on these boards and be just told, well, you've got as much money as you want, pretty much, and just go on and take over that industry, and that's what we've seen, massive hostile takeovers all over the world uh, I mean, okay, so not not in places where, it'd be very. what happened in Russia, I think, is in a whole other fascinating episode in 1999 and 2000, because there was, that the country was about to be subsumed into the Borg, as the oligarchs were vultures <laughs> Eating away, but um, but then Berezovsky made the fatal mistake of choosing Putin to be his. Uh, he was deputy prime minister at the time. In fact, I mean, Putin yeah. was put to the test by Berezovsky. I think it's pretty clear in the Moscow Riots and bombings in 1999. Um, the uh, this is this is uh, blocks of flats were blown up supposedly by the Chechens, but uh, but Berezovsky had been involved in this, and they wanted to get the Chechen war going, and because Putin. As, as acting prime minister, to turn a blind eye to this, um, Berezovsky and the oligarchs thought, oh, well, we can trust Putin because he couldn't, ne- you know, we can, we can uh, expose his collaboration with us on these um, hotel bombings. Sorry, not mm-hmm. hotel, uh, uh, apartment bo- bombings if he starts to step out of line. So we've got him, you know, by the short and curlies. And uh, so Putin then was their blue-eyed boy Oh, he'll look more credible than Yeltsin we've already got most of the country anyway we have bought it up, we've taken it, we've moved it abroad, the ownership of these Soviet, ex-Soviet industries but Putin then in 2000 turned the tables in I think a very courageous way and decided I mean obviously he had some friends at the KGB, uh, FSB who were, you know he would be not just doing this alone um, and and then said to Berezovsky, right, well, I'm very sorry, but that old charge under Yeltsin uh, about the Aeroflot shares, uh, I can't stop them. They're going to be coming around to um, interview you tomorrow and they may possibly arrest you. I'm um, Just as an old friend, I'm telling you it's happening. So if you you better get the first plane out of Russia in the morning um, and then we can try and sort this out another time. Of course, he never came back. Berezovsky flew straight to London um, and Putin got Russia back from the oligarchy yeah. uh, in yeah. an, an incredible move, really. And and then Berezovsky was starting to talk too much in London. Uh, he was very close, by the way, to the Queen's cousin, the head Freemason, and the Masons, by the way, were involved very much in Bilderberg too. Uh, mm. And that's Prince Michael of Kent. And he was taking he was on the payroll of Prince Michael of Kent. Um, and, but he was thinking, so he was, by the way, a fluent Russian speaker and, um, and he was starting to talk too much. So he was, hmm. uh, I, I believe, you know, it was, officially it was uh, suicide, but I mean, you know, I, I yeah. believe he was executed as most people do that bothered to look into what happened to Berezovsky in London.
0: Right, interesting Uh, But if we see here Bilderberger, EU, NATO, CIA, even NASA They're all under the corporations, they're all flooded with Nazis How can it then be that the Nazi philosophy did not get a revival? Did the old timers just throw away, let's say, the anti-Semitism and the more passionate Hitlerism of their ideology and just
1: continued as well okay it's so a bit more Zionists or, or? Okay, so they got rid of most of the uh, Jews in Europe the, the real Jews mm. and now it's moved on to Islamophobia in Islam and the mass murder of Islamic people and the demonization of Islam, uh, so the Nazi philosophy is definitely still there. I mean, it's just it's taken on a new uh, appearance. Um, it's the same thing, really, and and also I think it's quite fair to say that Europe is a cartel system, which was the fascist Nazi Germany economic yeah. model. Uh, so uh, you know, there's no way that people are going to get into business anymore, really, in any kind of serious way, because the banks will not simply mm. won't l- lend to them, mm. um, even if there is wide open competition and a monopoly um so the system is is rigged everything is rigged if if you're a small business maybe if you know you you could maybe start out as a hairdresser that you yeah. might succeed you can start any kind of small concern but there's no way you're going to be doing anything you know sizable like no. you know, building aircraft or you know even cars in britain we don't build any cars here in Britain. i think maybe there's a one or two like luxury car models still being made where they they produce about one a month but the entire car industry is now owned by foreign interests and the, all the technology that was developed for example uh, by the British, the jet... jet um, yeah, m-
0: m- monopolism is a trait of, uh, I say, a fascist, a corporatism, and the multinational corporations are dwindling into
1: monopoly on all areas. The most important thing to see, look at it with this, this new fascism hmm. is what I mentioned before is this transhumanist idea. Yeah. I think that's one of the, the key... Ideological elements is they really do believe the Bilderbergers and certainly Wallenberg was one of them that I spoke to and I got the sense that this is his kind of thing. Mm. Is is they they just believe they're superior and they have no interest in, for example, free free press, freedom of speech. They believe they can they're control freaks effectively, mm-hmm. and they have got all this. They they've put their faith in the ability to buy up and in money in the ability to buy up any kind of competition so they don't we don't have um fights in europe anymore but we have hostile takeovers which are just as effective Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. as as, as controlling industries and of course the media just becomes another factory to take over with these banker tanks and so really it's just their show on the tv screen
0: what do you think of the political uh, essence how sorry how do you mean uh, those who calls
1: the shots uh, the global elite do
0: they have any ideology
1: they, you know, they're basically an aristocracy aren't they they're a very super elite bunch of small number of animals. just self preservation just surviving on top yeah I don't, don't think they have any real belief system other than in themselves and they want to get as, as much as they can for them and they're their own children,
0: except what they may use uh, to exploit, right? As they would with the Zionism, even.
1: Yeah, it's it's very much a it's very much a um, cul-de-sac philosophy, isn't it? Mm. So you know, it's it, they're never going to be satisfied. Really, it's like the their power is is like a drug. It's like heroin, mm. and it's never going to be enough for them. Uh, and, and these people really are verging on you know being psychopathic in their behaviour. And that's what I believe we could be seeing something later this year with with Iran. I don't honestly think that uh, I mean, there's a lot of saber rattling, but it looks to me as if this is absolutely for real. And they, these people are you know, maniacal enough to pursue this, you know, this plan to have a, a massive clash between the Zionists and Islam in order to try and smash Islam like uh, the Nazis tried to smash Judaism you know, real Judaism. Not, not really Islam.
0: It's more the free, the, the parts of Islam that's not under their control. I mean,
1: Saudi Arabia is lockstep with these guys. Yeah, but that's not Islamic. Saudi Arabia is not Islamic, really, you know. No, no I agree. It's not. It doesn't follow the Islamics. Really. Yeah, you mean
0: the traditional Islam. They want to eradicate that. Yeah, yeah
1: and I mean, it's these, these, these faiths have a tremendous, I mean, I don't know how much you you know, travel. I've been very lucky to have traveled in Iran, and if you just meet Ordinary folk in Iran, mm. you know, they're they're proud of the, having an Islamic Republic, and the moral values of Islam are very good moral values. You know, they're welcome, very welcoming to to strangers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you know, you can't generalize about a whole people, but it's an important thing to have. And it also, it's impossible to make it change with the media. You know, you can't change what people think when they believe in a specific philosophy which is unchanging and they want to be able to just manipulate people this is one of the things they i think they hate most about genuine judaism you know the naturi Carter and orthodox jews adhere to um and genuine islam and genuine christianity is because you cannot make people malleable they have beliefs that can't be changed because of their faith Mm. and they hate that more than almost anything else because we're addicted to power and that power means controlling people, controlling people's minds in the same way as a farmer you know, controls his cattle and his sheep and his animals I mean that's the mentality I think that they have towards us and I think there's no, it's no coincidence that George Orwell wrote his book Animal Farm, I mean he's really just talking about the way that these people think mm. about us and he knew that and he, I, I think actually possibly he was, uh, you know, bumped off Orwell too because he was writing some very very powerful stuff in the 40s and the 50s yeah.
0: became uh, visionary work so in the, in the same way they eradicated rabbinism in the 30s they're trying to eradicate shia today so that's Saudi Arabia can yeah. take over
1: I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't say shia or sunni is right or wrong I just think that both have got twisted versions I mean just like yeah. the the Vatican has got a very twisted version of of the Catholic faith. I mean, you find ordinary Catholics, fine, nice, genuine people, but Mm. this is where the little eye at the top of the pyramid comes in, isn't it? Well, we don't mind what people do down the bottom, but we control the top. That's Mm. the Illuminati, and whether or not there is anything called the Illuminati still around, people have got to be absolutely clear that this was a very, very genuine movement back in,
0: uh, just after Yeah, but the original Illuminati seemed to be more of uh a a rebel movement trying to change.
1: Oh, I don't, I don't think so. There's still... Yeah, okay, so you get... The, the Illuminati formed just after the abolition of the Jesuits, right? Uh, Cecil Rhodes, in his will, says, I want to form a secret society based on the Jesuit model of secret societies. And um, and the Illuminati was absolutely fixed on two things. is the head and the heart. So they wanted to control... And own politics through political parties, and they wanted to control and own religions. So yeah, but
0: this this wasn't unique for for that specific group that was called the Illuminati. That that was a very common way to organise back in the day around the revolution.
1: I think you might, you might say, for example, Rosicrucians having similar ideas. But at the end of the day, the interesting thing about the Illuminati was the way that it, it was leaked at the time. And it's, you know, that looking at that book, the uh, John Robeson book, Proofs of a Conspiracy, is probably the best way to… Uh okay. Anyway, I'm going to have to go now. But have yep. fascinating chatting, and um, uh, if anyone is interested in following some of the stuff I do, we you know we we have a radio show every week on FM here in Bristol, which is on Bristol Community FM (BCFM) um, from six till eight live every Friday. Which you don't have to be in Bristol to pick it up because you can get it online. Um, and so that's at thisweek.org.uk. Where do we k- get it online? Thisweek.org.uk, you'll find it there, and uh, and then I also got a forum, the 9/11 forum, which looks into all sorts of assassinations, conspiracies, and that sort of thing, and terrorist attacks as they happen. That's 9/11forum.org.uk, and then the classic Bilderberg.org, which is a domain name that I bought back in 1997. Nice. You (laughs) you were early on. That's clever.
0: So that's your site. Um, Do you podcast your shows so people can
1: get them? Yep, it's all there. Yep, you can download them all. So there's archives online? definitely well, for, probably too much far too much archives <laughs> but anything you want to go i mean we did a fridge for example we did a thing on special on the kennedy assassination which has all been solved by the way nice. david out Phillips and the cia was and james files actually fired the fatal shot this stuff is all it's all the truth is out there folks so hang on who
0: should we talk with about the jfk thing
1: uh, well, I would use actually play an interview with with James Files, which was done by. Uh, he's, I mean, he was the shooter. Uh, he's the he was in the eighty second airborne division, so he was not the easiest guy to bump off afterwards. I would say. <laughs> You know, they obviously, you know, whoever it was that shot JFK was almost certainly going to get a bullet in the head themselves not too long afterwards because they might start talking. But he was trained by the uh, uh, 82nd Airborne Division and he was out in Korea fighting. And so he wasn't a very easy guy to dispatch because he had a gun in his car the whole time, you know. And then when they tried to kill him, he would start shooting back straight away. So he's (laughs) a fascinating character. This should be a movie. (laughs) And also, well, one day hopefully. And also, of course, Madeleine Brown. Um, who was Lyndon Johnson's girlfriend has confessed everything really that happened the night before the assassination, um, you know, in Clint Murchison's house in in Dallas. So, mm-hmm. I mean, which was. Hoover. this is the fbi and everyone getting together basically to for the conspiracy um but uh yeah i mean it was a tragic end to freedom really in the united states and and of course something else that happened long not long afterwards was the um stopping the the linking of the dollar to gold and from mm. then on it the whole thing started to slide yep. you know into mafia controlled fascist controlled um tyranny
0: Yep, and that's where we find ourselves today.
1: I mean, let's just keep on top of it, because a lot of the youngsters out there are, are, are very knowledgeable about some of this stuff, and they're very cynical. I think in my generation when I was growing up, we, you know, we weren't anywhere near as uh, knowledgeable about hidden power as the youngsters, young people are. That, thanks to the
0: internet, they didn't see it coming. That's why they need to control it, right?
1: Yeah. All right. Okay. Nice. Nice. That's a wrap. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got to go. I've got to rush. Seriously. I've got. To go.
0: Yeah. Uh, I send you the link when it's out. Okay. Beautiful. Take it from there. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So thank you a lot, uh, Tony, for your contributions today. It was a pleasure. No problem. Anytime.
1: Lovely. Thank you. Yeah. Some great, great questions. questions. Really good. Yeah. yeah. Good grilling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and great
1: answers. Okay. Later. Cheers. Okay. Here we are Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: And that's our show tonight. Now, if you are puzzled about the cooperation between the surviving Nazi elite and emerging Zionist elite that overlaps in the 50s and the 60s, you have to understand that the world is not this simple false dichotomy that you presented, and which is probably not more... Visible than in the mainstream political field of party politics, left-wing, right-wing. If you are one of the circles who buys into that, okay, but you'll then probably also have a hard time understanding the complexities and nuances of real politics. So there is only two uh, in conflicts of interest in modern politics. That is the public, the people, on the one hand, the masses, It is all about the the serfs, if you like, and you are one of them, whether you like it or not. And then there's the elite, we can call them whatever, the establishment, and that's how it is in every country. So you better grow up and start realizing the adult perspective. So when Hitler was out of the equation, obviously it was much more easier for the surviving nazis to you know the old saying if you can't beat them join them so we have a conglomerate of the intel the emerging of the corporations the nazi elite and the wall street city of london crowd as we have uncovered in so many shows and We're starting to address this peculiarity now because we have reached that part of the timeline where it becomes relevant. I mean, many people are like, oh, why aren't you covering Israel and Zionism? Well, we haven't gotten to it yet. And usually they ask because they are partisan and are just bothered by the facts But if you can't handle the facts, then you may want to revise your partisanship. I mean, being 100% on board with an ideology or a political identification is very, very stupid. Honestly, you are then a tool. Nothing less, nothing more. Um, it's not natural, it's not natural to be 100% agreeing with anything if you are an independent thinker, which too few are but we hope we can wake up people with these shows because if we are to have anything but a gloom future people need to start thinking for themselves I want to quote a project that Tony worked on called then the Panzers now the banksters where he speaks on the problems with mainstream media and the importance of independent media at the state and corporate crimes against democracy conference in London in 2012 So much emphasis is placed on select Jewish participation in Bormann companies that when Adolf Eichmann was seized and taken to Tel Aviv to stand trial, it produced a shockwave in the Jewish and German communities of Buenos Aires Jewish leaders inform the Israeli authorities in no uncertain terms that this must never happen again because a repetition would permanently rupture relations with the Germans of Latin America as well as with the Bormann organization and cut off the flow of Jewish money to Israel it never happened again. And the pursuit of Bormann quieted down at the request of these Jewish leaders. This was highlighted uh, already by Manning, the CBS News correspondent, in his book, Martin Bormann Nazi in Exile. So the, it's nothing new. We've seen how the Fourth Reich has emerged consisting of old-school Nazi elite, Anglo-American oligarchs, and Zionists. And, like I said in the show, nowhere more visible today than in the axis of evil, counting the hijacked states of U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia. And until these regimes fall, the world will not know anything close to peace Prosperity or harmony. If you enjoy our shows, uh, remember to subscribe. We get frequently comments from people who just discovered us and asks why we have so few subscribers. And (laughs) what can I say? Maybe it's because we usually do long form in this day and age. People have their attention span ruined by the MSM. Maybe it's because we do conversational. Many people don't want to hear a uh, discussion. They want to hear they want to hear prescribed one-liners with an artificial lecture in reply. Again, because they're conditioned by the MSM. Maybe it's my weird accent, although I hear some think it's cute. <laughs> Maybe it's because we do not do commercial considerations. Even if we look out sometimes and some shows take off, it surprises us as much as anyone. So we, we do passionate follow our ideals of what why we're doing this show. And that hurts, of course, the numbers and the and the wallet. Maybe it's because we don't release frequent shows, much due to the long-form format. I mean, the algorithm is rigged against that, and it, it rewards people who releases new shows all the time. And of course, probably mainly because if you look at YouTube today it is a refuge it's a retirement home for the mainstream channels they are tanking in the old stream outlets and so you probably noticed they're all invading YouTube now facilitated by YouTube who's owned by Google who is in bed and owned by these same conglomerates that own the old stream media so it's just one hand facilitating the survival of the other hand this is how they do it Tony said it in the show hostile takeover so they took over YouTube and gradually they have to squeeze out all independent channels they can't do it overnight because they need all the people who are active on YouTube you so one way they do it is unsubscribing people from independent channels I don't know if that's what's going on with us but we have lost 8,000 subscribers Uh, And then they force-subscribe people to mainstream channels, but more effectively they shadow ban and demonetize a lot of shows. This will probably uh, probably happen to this one too, although we haven't breached one single of their so-called ad-friendly policy points. And if you take a look at the right side of the channel where They're advertised for other shows. It used to be, at least half of them used to be our shows. I mean, on the list of recommended shows from one of our shows. And then it used to be relevant, other shows that were relevant to whatever we covered in that main show where the uh, recommended videos appear. But today you'll see, if you're lucky, there's probably one other of our shows, usually none. And then there's a bunch of mainstream, like 90%. And it's not, of course, not just at our videos, this is across the board. So this is one of the ways to do it. And I think we're closing up to uh, everybody's talking about the new crack coming. And I think we can smell it. We've lost half our subscribers, sponsors lately. For no good reason because we've been active as ever before i think it's people feeling it in their wallets. so look out for that so but you don't have to pay us a dime to support us subscribe and remember to click the bell click the bell click the bell as they always say otherwise you won't get notified and share our shows the algorithm picks up ...sharing across the board at all social platforms, not just YouTube. And then hypes it further. So if you're going to have any chance for shows like this one to be spread... ...the algorithm has to believe it's spreadable, which you can help contribute to by sharing it. And remember to mention us to people. So many people haven't heard of us. We have not reached anything near the potential of our target audience... It's just word of mouth that can do it, especially now that we, c- we don't get any pull from YouTube. And, of course, we're preparing for the day they're going to force us out. So we have a present at po- normal broadcast platforms. you find us at most of them. And we're also going to experiment with some other platforms similar to YouTube in the future. That's it. Thanks for hanging in there and bearing with us I'm your host Al solely due to my team and your support be seeing you
1: Is number one